Well, good morning and welcome to Redeemer this morning. We're certainly glad that you are here on this Palm Sunday weekend to join us for worship. It's difficult to believe that we're just on the doorstep of another Easter, but we're glad you're here and welcome back those who have been traveling or on spring break, uh, been gone for a while. We're certainly delighted that you are here to uh, be part of this worship service today. On Palm Sunday, Christians from all over the world remember the story of Jesus riding a donkey into the city of Jerusalem to the cheers of people who were gathered along the road into that city. He was acclaimed as a king, as a hero, the person who would come to save his people. Jesus was actually fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming. He's riding on a donkey's colt. The people were shouting blessings to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the, to the King of Israel. But just a few days later, their joy turned to disappointment and the same crowd would be calling for his death. Crucify him. Today we're going to be talking about how this day, Palm Sunday, is not just a prelude to Easter. It's not just the warm-up act to something greater. This day is the beginning of Holy Week. And Holy Week is really the turning point of history. Jesus himself said that his goal was to come and to bring peace to the world. And yet, as we have watched the news this week, we've been filled with shock and horror as we have watched chemical weapons being used on innocent human life. And in today's news, churches being bombed in Egypt, in a part of the world that, where there seems to be no lasting peace. So today we pray for the people of uh, Syria, we pray for the people in Egypt, we pray for all who have suffered much, but we also pray for all the nations of the world, that truly one day we might all reflect the character of the one who came to redeem his people and to give us hope, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's bow in a moment of prayer, shall we? We give you thanks, loving God, for this season of the year and for the anticipation that we feel as we celebrate the events that lead up to Easter. Today we look to the one who not only rode into the city many years ago to the cheers of his people, but whom we look to today because we need the calm, steady, humble presence of that same Jesus in our lives and in our world. So bless us as we worship you this day and unite us in your love, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, this is Holy Week, and around the world, Christians are celebrating the historic events that took place some 2,000 years ago. Although there are many things that separate us, one thing about which all Christians agree is that Holy Week is at the center of our Christian faith. For one glorious week, differences of language and culture and race and doctrine seem to, uh, to take a lesser role. And what a week it is, eight days that begins with Palm Sunday and ends with Easter Sunday. Two great events, bracket Holy Week, Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. It's truly a Holy Week because it encompasses the most sacred events of the Christian faith. All the things that we hold dear are proved to be true during this great week. This morning our focus is on Palm Sunday. I'm sure that some of us know the general outline of the story, but I suspect that many of us may not have considered the story in detail. 
For example, why did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey? Why did the people wave palm branches? Why did they cry out Hosanna as he passed by? What does all of this mean? Of all the events of Holy Week, the triumphal entry is perhaps the most overlooked and often uh, least understood. As a place to begin, let's consider these words by the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard when he said, the truth must essentially be regarded as in conflict with this world. On Palm Sunday, the truth rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's back. And although the crowds cheered the truth, beneath the surface, there was conflict that was raging. The majority did not want the truth on that day, and many have not wanted the truth on any day since. That first Palm Sunday day began as all other days, with an early sunrise and the sound of merchants opening their shops. Bethany wasn't a large town, maybe not even a town at all, more like a village, a simple cluster of homes. And here and there, farmers were getting ready to go to their fields. It was planting season. Mothers bustled around getting children dressed and ready for the day. But in one home, things were different because Jesus was there. It was the home of Mary and Martha, two sisters who lived together there with their brother Lazarus. Jesus had visited with them many times. Their home was a special place of refuge for Jesus. But this time, his visit had been different. This time, he had come for a funeral, but it it turned into a celebration. Just a day or two earlier, he had publicly raised Lazarus from the dead. And hundreds of people had seen him do it. And by now, thousands more heard the news. It seemed so impossible, but Jesus had done it, and the celebration had continued Now morning had come, it was clear to everyone that Jesus was not staying any longer. He had to look about him as a man on a mission. No one else knew what was about to happen, not even the most perceptive among his disciples. Let me pause there for a moment to tell you that the story of the triumphal entry is repeated in detail in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all write about this story. That fact is noteworthy because it tells us that something critical was about to happen. And also, as we read this story, one impression overwhelms us. That Jesus is in complete control of everything that happens on this Palm Sunday. Unlike other events in his life, he's not reacting to anyone or anything else. No one expects him to do what he does. There's no sick people to heal. There's no Pharisees to confront. There are no storms to still, no dead people to raise, no puzzling questions to answer. answer. What Jesus does, he does this day of his own accord. Now the story of Palm Sunday really begins with a donkey. Most of us have heard how Jesus sent his disciples to a neighboring village, probably Bethpage, with instructions to bring back a donkey. And when we read Matthew's account, we realize that the two disciples actually brought back two donkeys a mother and her young colt that had never been ridden. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the young colt with the mother walking alongside. Matthew also tells us that by riding this donkey into Jerusalem, Jesus was fulfilling the ancient prophecy of Zechariah. The prophet in the Old Testament, chapter 9, these words were written 575 years earlier predicting that when the Messiah would come to Israel, he would come 
riding on a donkey. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Now these words tell us two specific facts about the Messiah. First, he will come as a gentle king, riding on a donkey. Second, he will come as a righteous king, bringing salvation to his people. Nothing would have seemed more unlikely than for a king to come riding on a donkey. Jesus could hardly have chosen a more unlikely way to present himself to the nation. If the Bible had not predicted it, no one would have dreamed it that up. That explains why the Romans just sat idly by on Palm Sunday with thousands of people flocking to see Jesus. From their point of view, the whole thing was a joke. A king on a donkey? You must be kidding. No self-respecting king would be caught dead on a donkey. If you wanted to make an impact, you would ride on a war horse, surrounded by soldiers, maybe riding in a chariot, but on a donkey? No way. It's hard to imagine the Romans laughing as they watch this spectacle, this pauper king riding on a borrowed donkey. His saddle was a makeshift layer of coats attended by an unruly mob whose only weapons were palm branches. He didn't look much like a king on that day, but that was the whole point. He's a king, but not like any earthly king. The triumphal entry was an acted-out parable in which Jesus was sending a clear message to the nation. This is what I am. I am your king, but I am not the king that you're expecting. Speaking of the unexpected, as Jesus began the three-mile journey from Bethany to, to Jerusalem, the people along the road began to do something no one could have predicted as Jesus passed by, they waved palm branches. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews were told to wave palm branches, palm branches as part of the Feast of Tabernacles. 200 years before Christ, during the Maccabean Rebellion, when the Jews temporarily regained control of the temple from the Syrians, they celebrated by waving palm branches. 30 years after the death of Christ, during the rebellion that led up to the sacking of Jerusalem in AD 70, the Jews minted coins containing an image of palm branches on one side. So in the time that Jesus lived, palm branches represented joy. They represented celebration. They were also a symbol of national liberation for the Jews. So waving palm branches before Jesus was similar to our perhaps giving him a ticker tape parade. When the Jews waved the palm branches as Jesus rode by, they were saying, this is the man, this is the day. It was a welcome giving to, given to kings and to conquerors. Ride on, King Jesus. No one can stop you now. But it's Sunday morning, five days before Passover. That fact is significant because it means that shortly Jerusalem is going to be clogged with pilgrims from every part of Israel for this great celebration. The historian Josephus says that during Passover, the population of Jerusalem could swell to like three million people. It was the closest thing in Israel to a national town meeting. Everyone who was anyone would show up for Passover. Long forgotten friends would meet on the streets. Families would travel hundreds of miles to be there. And in such an atmosphere of festive anticipation, rumors spread quickly. As word spread that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, people began to wonder if Jesus would come to Jerusalem for Passover. 
Everyone knew the animosity that existed between Jesus and the temple leaders. Would he take the chance? Would he come anyway? Or would Jesus choose the safe route and stay away? Well, add that to the general political turmoil that always seemed to exist in Israel. There was three main political parties. The Pharisees, who patiently endured the Roman rule. The Zealots, who didn't patiently endure anything, especially the Romans. They hated the Romans. And the Sadducees, who ran the temple complex and cooperated with the Romans. And then you have the Romans themselves and the two key rulers, Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas. And the stage is set for a great confrontation. And it's into this unstable situation that Jesus rides on the back of a young donkey. What's going to happen next? Picture the scene as Jesus leaves Bethany for Bethpage and the Mount of Olives. Hundreds of people come running to join him. Soon the crowd swells as whole families drop what they're doing and they line this narrow dirt road. If you read John's account, it's clear that another large crowd in Jerusalem, having heard that Jesus was on his way, leaves the city and meets him as he approaches the Mount of Olives. And somewhere on the far side of the Kidron Valley, the two groups join in this melee of shouting and singing and laughing and dancing and chanting. And it's a day of unbridled joy as the common people welcome Jesus to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, inside the city... The chief priests and the scribes are monitoring this situation with increasing alarm. There's a public display of support for Jesus was the last thing in the world that they wanted. It appears to them that the entire world has gone over to Jesus' side, and their shock turns to dismay and then to anger as the reports keep coming in. The minutes turn to hours on Palm Sunday while two streams of human emotion uh, converge. On one hand, there's this rising excitement as Jesus nears the eastern gate. And on the other hand, there is a mounting opposition as the leaders decide that this Jesus is never going to leave the city alive. Meanwhile, the progression makes its way toward Jerusalem and the shouts of the people are growing louder by the moment. All four gospel writers point out uh, uh, that the people shouted, but they also point out what they shouted. They specifically mention two things. First, they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And second, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is a Hebrew word, means save us, save us now. And every observant Jew immediately recognized the second statement as a quotation from Psalm 118. They all knew Psalm 118 because it was one of the best known of the Messianic Psalms. And by shouting these words, people were in effect identifying Jesus as the promised Messiah. No other meaning could reasonably construe, be construed from their shouts. These people believed that the long-awaited Messiah had come. Now, sometimes it's overlooked that Jesus gladly accepted the praise of the people on Palm Sunday. And what a change that was. For most of his public ministry, whenever he'd work a miracle, he told people not to go spread the word because he wanted people to see him as more than just a miracle worker. But not today. The time for silence was long past. Earlier, he had discouraged publicity, but now the time had come for truth. When the Pharisees heard the crowds praising him, they urged him to rebuke his disciples. Jesus refused, saying, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks themselves are going to break forth in praise to me. 
Now something very strange happens. Luke tells us that at the height of all of this celebration, Jesus begins to weep. It happened on the road to Jerusalem as it wound around the southern shoulder of the Mount of Olives. And if you travel that road, you come to the crest of a small rise. And as you reach the crest, the whole city of Jerusalem suddenly appears before your eyes. It's an awesome and breathtaking sight. And when Jesus saw the city, he began to weep. It must have seemed very strange, but Jesus was weeping not for himself, but for the city that was about to reject him. Jesus saw the cheering crowd, and beyond that to the mob that would crucify him, he knew on Palm Sunday that Good Friday was only five days away. And through the dim mists of history, saw into the future to the time when the Roman army would come and sack Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And these are his words from Luke's Gospel. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close you in from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. In the midst of the joy, Jesus sees the future very clearly. He knew that Good Friday was only a few days away. He knew the nation would soon turn away from him. And he saw the future in which Jerusalem, uh, the Romans would destroy this beautiful city stone by stone, killing men and women and children by the thousands. And because the nation would reject its Messiah, such awful judgment would soon fall. Why? Because God's Son had come, and they didn't recognize him. God's Son had come, and they crucified him. Jesus knew that the crowds were fickle. He knew the leaders were plotting against him. He knew the cheers would soon turn to jeers. He knew on Sunday what would happen on Friday. He knew the cross lay directly in his path. He knew all of those things. But he went to Jerusalem anyway. King Jesus rode on toward the city because he had an appointment in Jerusalem. After Palm Sunday, no one could truly say that they didn't know who Jesus was. They knew he himself made it so clear they couldn't have missed it. On Palm Sunday, the nation had a clear choice to make. So did the rulers. The Romans didn't interfere in any of this. The priests stood by and they watched it all happen. Every person had a choice to make that day and every person in Jerusalem made a choice. For better or for worse, the die was cast. Jesus called for a decision and the nation would soon render its verdict. When Jesus came into the city, there was wild confusion. The king had come. What would the people do? The disciples praised him openly. The little children praised him innocently. The crowds cheered him, but they didn't understand him. And the city was curious, but it was not committed. And that leaves the religious leaders, that large group of scribes and Pharisees, the elders of Israel, the rulers of the Sanhedrin, what would they do? How would they respond? Three words sum up the official reaction to Jesus on Palm Sunday. It was fright, frustration, and anger. Fright because they didn't know what Jesus was up to. Frustration because so many people cheered him as he rode into the city in anger because they now saw him as an enemy of their interests, an enemy to be eliminated. And the people of Israel were, were down to the wire. 
The luxury of idle discussion was now past. The time for a decision had come. Very soon the nation must render its verdict concerning Jesus Christ. Now the philosopher Kierkegaard gives us another penetrating word that applies to this moment in human history. He says Jesus Christ is the object of faith. One either believes in him or is offended by him. See, there are only two choices. We either believe or we are offended. The truth about Jesus cuts both ways, and none of us can stay in the middle forever. In Matthew's account, he includes this fascinating note. As Jesus approached Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Matthew says that the whole city was stirred, and the word there means shaken to its core. People began to ask each other, who is this man? And the answer came back, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now think about that answer for a moment. It's true as far as it goes. Every detail is correct, but it doesn't go far enough. He is a prophet, but he's so much more than a prophet. He is from Galilee, but that's not his ultimate hometown. The people of Jerusalem asked the right question and gave almost the right answer. But in spiritual things, almost right is not good enough. They were close, but they weren't close enough. Mark ends his account of the triumphal entry by telling us that after Jesus entered Jerusalem, he went to the temple because it was late in the day, nobody was there. So he left Jerusalem with his disciples and went back to Bethany to spend the night. Now it's a strange way to end such a momentous day, but it does raise a valid question. What did Jesus actually accomplish on this day? What, is, what was Palm Sunday really all about? Why the triumphal entry at all? If you want the answer in one sentence, it goes like this. Jesus was sending a message to the nation on Palm Sunday, a message that the time for a decision had come. No longer would the people have the privilege of dis discussing his credentials in some abstract way, on this day, Jesus presented himself to the nation asking for an immediate decision. And the answer he received wasn't very encouraging. Although the crowds cheered, they didn't really understand him. Although the leaders understood him, they didn't cheer him. Israel came close, so close on that day to embracing him as God's Messiah, but close wasn't good enough. And after Palm Sunday, the only thing left was Golgotha and a cross. Well, nearly 20 centuries have come and gone since Jesus met his appointment in Jerusalem. So let me, in closing this morning, offer three important lessons that I think um, this Palm Sunday teaches us. First, that spiritual opportunities don't last forever. Where Jesus is involved, we can't wait forever to make a decision. No one can sit on the fence forever. There comes a time when a decision needs to be rendered if we are either for or against the Son of God. In spiritual matters, not to decide is to decide. And to say not now is really no. See, it's not enough to be interested in Jesus. Millions of people are interested in him, but they have no living relationship with him. The people on that first Palm Sunday were interested. The whole city was stirred to the point of discussion but not to the point of action. Mere interest will never save us. The gospel saves only those who believe, not those who talk about believing. 
You see, interest is good if it leads to action, and if not, interest will eventually turn to disinterest and ultimately to hatred. Spiritual neutrality is a temporary way station. It's not a permanent destination. No one stays there forever. There's a time to think. There's a time to decide. There's a time to be silent, and there's a time to speak. There's a time to discuss and a time to make up your mind. And Palm Sunday reminds us that each of us must sooner or later make up our minds about who Jesus Christ is to us. The reason many people do not see uh, truth is not because we have not read enough books or don't have enough academic degrees behind our names, but that we do not have enough courage. If knowledge alone would save us, the whole world would be saved by now. But knowledge without courage leads to an intellectual cul-de-sac. It takes courage to believe in Jesus. And for that matter, it takes courage to make any important decision in the spiritual realm. Rarely is knowledge the root of our problem. Mostly, we lack the courage to embrace the truth. Secondly, the world that rejected Christ then still rejects him today. Many people today hate religious emotion in the same way that the Pharisees hated the way the crowds cheered Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. They hate religious emotion because they don't understand it. To them, religion is this intellectual affair that never really touches the heart. But Jesus would have none of that more than anything else. Jesus wants us to give him our heart. And then the invitation, number three, is not to believe, but to be brave. Christ comes again and again to the human heart, and each time a verdict must be rendered. Jesus has come to us today, and the question is, what will we do? Will we join those who crucified him, or will we join those who are shouting Hosanna? You see, our greatest need is for courage to make the right moral choices. When the time comes to take sides with Jesus, all we need is the courage to do the right thing. The Palm Sunday invitation is not simply to believe in Jesus, but to be brave and to have courage. The brave join the little children who praised him gladly, while the timid are left to dream about, about what might have been. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you knew all along that the praise of the crowd in Jerusalem on that day was hollow. And yet you continued on for us. So teach us to be obedient, to not fear the challenges in our life. We went, you went to great lengths, even to a cross, to show us that you loved us and cared for us. And may the world today see that kind of dedication and that kind of service above self in each of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.